Can, you can't hear my fridge. Welcome to A Different World, the fourth season of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jigade. And I'm Anna Ida. This season, we ask curator Maya Rudovska to supply us with a handful of wise people. In each episode, you will hear us talking with artists and curators based in either the Baltics or New Orleans. To ask us a question anonymously, use the link in our bio on Instagram at Ask Adelaide and Anna, and your question might be featured on our next season. I am so excited that we are here for a different world. At last. Yeah. After uh, how long has it been? A year and a half? Basically, like, since lockdown here. Yeah. We haven't had recorded since maybe April 2020. We're recording from Tulsa, Oklahoma in the U.S., and my partner's studio next to my apartment in Stavanger, West Coast, Norway. We're going to ask all our guests what things have changed, and yeah, some things have changed. Okay, so um, one thing that's changed for me since the beginning of the pandemic is that I learned how to speak another language. Hooray, hooray. <laughs> Finally. Or how do you say that in that language? <laughs> Brava. I don't know. <laughs> Being friends with Adelaide and being on her, following her Instagram stories, I'm uh, learning about the amount of Spanish that Adelaide has been learning this, yeah, this year. It's pretty massive. Yeah. And then, you know, you can have conversations for a whole year and realize that you never learned the word dig, you know, until you need it. (laughs) It feels so basic. (laughs) It's so impressive. So you've had a big change too. I had a baby. Uh, so after like many years of um, hoping, thinking, praying that I'd one day have a kid, I now have a nine-month-old daughter. Yay! So we're actually answering a couple of questions related to children this season, which is like a major change. Yeah. <laughs> a major change in our podcast. because we used to be like, <laughs> we're not capable of answering those kinds of questions. But actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, I ended up um, I happened to be in Portland, Oregon, where we, I was recording season three from, and I was living with my sister. She has two kids who at the time were five and 10. And so I spent the first five months of the pandemic helping them with online school, um, making them food, entertaining them, watching movies with them. So I spent a lot of time with my niece and nephew. I feel better equipped for the children questions some experience so you like you're sort of covered for a, a bit older toddler we're covered up, we're covered kids. up to preteens with experience okay, okay. yeah <laughs> oh i'm excited so i'm david ashley kerr um i i'm a curator and an artist and i uh, am in riga latvia and what brought you to latvia uh, well that's probably like a whole other podcast, but <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was a, um, I have spent my whole kind of career as an arts worker um, fairly driven by uh, work and um, the pandemic gave me a lot of time to think and I, for the first time in my in my life, I just decided to follow my heart in a rather romantic gesture, um, and see how that worked out career wise. And it, it's it's yeah, it's it's doing okay. It's kind of um, proof that uh, yeah, you can do these romantic gestures, and and the career stuff will follow. So, 
Wow. See, we wanted some love on this season because oh, everybody, great. everything's so serious. <laughs> You're like, where are our sex and relationship questions? And I hear you. <laughs> love from the start. That's great. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm excited to answer some questions. Okay, um, before we start, we've been thinking of something that we can share to each other, somehow to just um, get an idea of where we're at and what kind of things that have changed the last, well, during the pandemic. If you'd like to mention one or two things that have changed in your life during this time. Yeah, well, I got married during the pandemic. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you know, I, I, to be honest, I don't really, I'm not really adhering to the, to the institution of marriage and it's, it's a fairly inherently Christian concept. And this, I don't know, I, I never thought I'd be, to be honest, it, it, part of it was um, because I'm a, what you kind of call uh, a third country national, which means I'm not a European citizen and I, I'm Australian. And um, even though I've been living in the EU for quite many years, and uh, yeah, Latvia is a fairly, um, it's not exactly pro-immigration, uh, even for an EU country that's, um, yeah, supposedly has EU values. I, yeah, I had to, to marry my, my girlfriend to, to, uh, to remain here and to make, uh, yeah, just even just to give it a chance to, to see if it would work. So that was kind of a, yeah, a really intense thing to happen during the pandemic. Yeah, it's only in those circumstances that... I think a lot of people realize, like, despite your personal beliefs about marriage, there's, like, the bigger mm. institutions that will determine whether or not you can be together. Totally. It's like a higher power. You kind of don't have control or autonomy as much as you think you do. Yeah. Adelaide, what's, um, do you want to share a change? A uh, change is that I also moved during the pandemic. It was, the first part of my move was not planned. I was... I ended up where I was. I was installing an exhibition in Portland, Oregon, and the pandemic hit and my sister lives there and she's like, you can just stay with us. And then the second move was I already had this fellowship in Tulsa, Oklahoma that I was supposed to start in August. So then in July, I rented a car, rented a van and drove all the way from Oregon to Oklahoma. Um, and this, I'm in Tulsa right now. So that is quite far, right? Yeah, Oklahoma is right above Texas, so kind of in the middle. That was a big, then you did it by car, like a big road trip. Yeah, and then on top of that, then my partner had a job. He was starting in Pittsburgh, so then we moved to Pittsburgh, <laughs> which is on the complete, complete other end of the country. So we've been mentioning, actually, like, personally for each conversation, things that have changed. So now I'm, like, I'm focusing, trying to think, like, what has changed. And something that I already mentioned is that I had... Um, um, my first baby, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mother now. And one of those things that came with that, the pregnancy, uh, is that I'm like, in you no know, drinking and smoking. Yeah. That's a, that's a big change. That's big. That's yeah. big for you. Yeah. That's yeah, oddly <laughs> knows me. That's big for you. And that's like instant um, cold turkey. Cause it's not like you just, you can't phase out slowly or anything. It's just, no, no, no. It's just like, Oh, there, there, there it went. Um, yeah, you can't be like, I'm just going to have a few shots. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I'll just finish this bottle of Riesling and then, like... <laughs> uh, I, I was actually thinking, like, how is this going to go? But it's been really easy. 
the drinking I, I'm kind of interested in taking up <laughs> taking up again but were you like uh, a social smoker or like a heavy smoker no 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 I wasn't a heavy smoker but now when I was thinking of what which things have changed and now I'm realizing as well where you guys live but here like no one smokes anymore anyways I was uh, at uh, at an event and all of a sudden like, I see a person leaving the room and I'm like why is he leaving <laughs> <laughs> That used to be a thing. I mean, especially in the arts, like, you know, half the party would be outside. Like, I spent most of my um, EU sort of um, part of my career has been spent in Germany, and it's still really widely accepted. Like, people are pretty heavy smokers. And that's where you go. But that's where you go to be social is literally, like, outside with all the smokers. And that's Mm. kind of, you know, that's the vibe. Should we um, get into some questions? Yes, let's start. Dear Adelaide and Anna, what do you do to stay out of the grind? I feel stuck sometimes, planning to relax in next month, and it never happens because next month just get filled up with stuff to do. Is it possible to stay out of the grind as artists? Is it purely economical? How do you manage to relax? (laughs) It's something that I think a lot of people talk about. It almost becomes this topic of conversation for any kind of social event. People actually talk about how you know it's almost like a badge of honor to say you're busy but busy has has become something else anyway hasn't it like it's yeah in the arts like the hustle is fairly eternal you you're constantly kind of hustling for maybe whether or not you're uh, an artist or an arts worker um you're often expected to do stuff outside of what would be like typical work or working Mm -hmm. hours and um, that's this you know blurry division of public and private that we're in at the moment. I mean, your social media life, uh, you know, our avatars become this extension of almost of our work if we're um, talking about the arts mm-hmm. uh, and to a larger extent, like other professions as well. But yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's something that I struggle with, of course, um, that the grind, yeah, feels fairly eternal. And I think, yeah, what that question sort of made a point of like economy or, you know, that economics play a part in that. And that um, I think like a way to remain at a level of like removing oneself from work um, or achieving like a work-life balance would be to incorporate, you know, maybe more creative pursuits into other um, kind of holiday-like uh, activities. I don't know. I I like to choose like artist residencies that have no expectation about production, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had this like weird, yeah, a lot of artist residencies would have this kind of huge deal about, you know, you've got to put a show on or you've got to do a talk or you've got to even like donate an artwork or, you know, and the expectations obviously go both ways then if there is this kind of, yeah demand of like production like what are you actually doing there but you know there are also like a plethora of um residencies that are just purely a space to um yeah not only to create but also just to just to chill chill out like you don't have to produce um uh, so great those ones I find that I do end up producing but in a more relaxed way that makes me make work that I maybe wouldn't have if I didn't if I felt pressure to just mm. perform myself or perform whatever I do that they accepted in my portfolio. Sure. And like, yeah, it's interesting you say perform because 
um, there is like an increasing, and I talk about this when I, I research a lot in, um, about the post-digital and um, we talk, people talk about uh, the conflation of um, artist and persona. You know, and this is mm. um, part and parcel of you know our, our, our online existence, and so it's it's so hard to switch off when you're kind of constantly switched on, and um, also kind of uh, maintaining your your uh, online existence. And I see some artists that don't seem to have like a social media presence, or they don't have a website, and that's like my fantasy. To be, you know, you you get to a point where like you don't have to apply for anything. People just call you. They they don't care that you don't have a website. They don't, care, you know, they just call you and give you opportunities. And you're like, yeah, okay. And then you have like a whole crew help you. <laughs> to be honest, that just sounds like boomer artists who are just not savvy enough to have their own stuff. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Because it, I mean, as a curator, I find it extremely frustrating when I have to look at an artist's Instagram account to actually glean, you know, what it is that they do, you know. Or have an artist like show me their Instagram as a, as their portfolio. I mean, that's yeah. really kind of frustrating. Especially if they post like pictures of a leaf on the ground or lint, and you're like short sorting through to like what is their actual work? <laughs> exactly, yeah, because it's interspersed with their private life, which you know I don't really want to have to get to know them as a person. I, I'm not really interested in that the, you know, <laughs> as much as like. Uh, the commercial side of art does tend to kind of mythologize the artist and their personality. I don't really, you know, it's not what I'm concerned with. I'm just trying to find like very specific things for our listener. So specifically those residencies that don't sort of demand uh, this outcome from you. Are there any other, I don't know, hacks or strategies you've used yourself to... Another question is like, how do you manage to relax? I think I mark out small parts of my day where I relax I think I allow myself like a certain you know my days can be like really um well they're structured but they're also very incredibly chaotic so I might mark out like a certain ritual that is meaningful whether it's some exercise or it's just like a walk where I don't take my phone or you know um I don't know a bath and I'm listening to, you know, a podcast that's not arts related <laughs> and it's uh, think about work. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, another thing that, and this is something that uh, I realized that um, perhaps it's something that's been fairly well worn in that people always say, you know, learn to say no to stuff. Um, and I know that I quite literally lecture my students um, <laughs> to not like sell themselves short and not just constantly say yes to things. And I would say, you know, stop that. But then, you know, the next day I'd say yes to some kind of poorly paid and time consuming (laughs) um, project, like at the drop of a hat, I would just say yes to something. So I was actually not practicing what I'm preaching. Side question. Does it help preaching to remind yourself? I don't know. I, you know, I, uh, I started teaching really young and I don't think I was listening to my own kind of, I guess my wiser self was coming out in the teaching, in the teacher, you know, as a performer, and I wasn't actually <laughs> adhering to that. And now that I'm a lot older, yeah, I can totally look back and be like, oh my god, what, what <laughs> who is this guy? Um, but I, yeah, I have, I kind of equipped myself with the uh, constitution to kind of be able to say no, and you know that I perhaps also, yeah, I've been hustling for so long that. Uh, I'm able to discern what is a what's a, a job that's worthwhile for me. Uh, you know, I don't need the exposure for this thing, or I don't. You know, 
I choose what I'm interested in and just do what, just sort of follow my, what my experience tells me. But that's what I'm kind of talking about with the, with the not wanting to have to have a website or all that is that you've gotten to a point in your career where you can do that. But maybe this person is like at the beginning and the exposure things, they feel like they need that or they mm. feel like they have to like hustle to have people find out who they are. And, and especially because they asked about the economical question. So, I'm, I mean, I try to think back because I don't have to hustle so much anymore. Maybe I should hustle more. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but not as much as before where I would just say yes to anything. You know, like you mm-hmm. said, just things that don't even make sense. Like what really, what exposure was it? You know, was it worth it? In a way, by saying yes to everything, saying like you're recently graduated and you say yes to everything, that also gives you a really good pool of like trying to figure out like what's a good and bad idea because you've actually like tested a lot of stuff. And, I'll never, yeah, like I'll never do that again. Yeah, and yeah, and and of course, sometimes those things happen even now <laughs> for me. Uh, but it's still, yeah, I still have like, yeah, a better sense of what I what I should and shouldn't like do. But um, so maybe maybe you also can say yes to everything, knowing that yeah, that it's a learning experience. And I think that depends kind of on your sort of health situation like how much you're pushing yourself like I'm not saying like say yes to everything and like basically like destroy your like mental physical health all that but within a certain I don't know healthy framework you can like allow yourself to do stuff or say yes to things you're not 100% sure of because it is like a learning opportunity and it might come useful in the long run and you can also give yourself a deadline because I think I've talked about this on a different season, but I was sitting in an, a meeting. I was like on a jury to decide, a pu- you know, who's going to get a public art commission. And everyone, I realized everyone else in the room was paid in some way. There were like university staff because I was an artist in residence at a university, university staff, museum staff, some staff of the university. So they were on the clock and I was an artist in residence who wasn't getting paid Except I got housing and a studio and I was paid when I taught a class, but then they didn't give me a class that semester. So I'm like, I'm literally here, like in a professional setting, deciding who's going to get this commission, giving my feedback. I read all the applications and it was my 33rd birthday. And, and I was like, this is the last time, like, this is it. <laughs> you know, like I'm too old for this nonsense. And like, there's no reason why I should have to do this. So I decided, you know, they were like, oh, we didn't decide. So like, we're going to have another meeting. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I can't come to the next meeting, but good luck. You know, there's a lot of great people. <laughs> but you just have to like put your foot down at some point when you realize you can. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And something like a jury is kind of, it's not as if it's a tangible opportunity for yourself. You're actually, they're using your standing um, mm-hmm. in a particular way. And there's no real transaction happening there. Uh, dear Adelaide and Anna, I would like advice on how to get artists who have more to say to one another than how's your project going as a way to open up space to boast about what they are doing. Basically, I want to know what it will take to get artists to be engaged in conversations about ideas without it being linked to a specific project and without ego driving it. It seems like a bit of cultural nuance here a little bit. I'm feeling like this made me... This feels like an American question in a little bit, in the sense that I associate a lot of kind of hyper competitiveness and individualist individualism. Although, yeah, we can argue that it's fairly symptomatic of like a post digital epoch that we become very hyper individualistic. But um, this competitiveness, uh, <laughs> to me, speaks a little bit about uh, yeah, struggling as an artist in this the American art system. But I do see it a lot 
uh, I did I did see it a lot in 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 like the top art academies in Germany and stuff and the kind of environment there became very focused on who's doing better than who who's getting shows who's getting put in shows you could see that some of it being kind of driven by ego and others kind of pure op- opportunism you know it could be like you know you could be talking to a curator and you're you, you kind of almost can't help uh, bring up the projects you're doing because it's, you know, this is the opportunity. It's super complex because you don't want to alienate yourself socially uh, from from the artist community because we need community, uh, particularly, you know, in the arts it's really important uh, as it is for us as humans. <laughs> um, even for introverts like me, I, I um, yeah, you need this kind of social life and it's not worth ostracizing yourself from that, even if parts of it can be fairly toxic or ego-driven, people can be pretty shameless. I mean, it's it's painful to watch always, but it's also painful to watch when someone's trying to steal the limelight from someone else. Yeah, that's the, the worst. And, and I do feel <laughs> that it's mostly men that can be fairly like, they're usually the ones that are kind of the perpetrators of this fairly ego-driven... Um, almost sort of yeah it's an almost a form of aggression I guess but it's just Mm. it it Mm. depends how you take it really doesn't it it's if you're aware of that um if you see that in the context of for what it is uh I you know look I I see a lot of artists often lack that kind of uh social their their social life is this and it's also Mm. kind of a hustle and so it's really hard to separate those two things. And so mm. you almost, these are the kind of things that they might bother their closest friends with, to, to, for example, like, but they're using a social setting such as whatever, it's a gallery opening or something. And mm. um, they're using this as an opportunity to process their career. They're kind of using you as a vessel. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that is perhaps, yeah, perhaps they're just, less socialized because they're you know might be a really serious artist and they're they're working really hard in the studio and they don't have that contact with other people um or the emotional intelligence to kind of yeah or the the social Mm. compass to to actually like realize i'm being super inappropriate right now i should just be talking about the weather or something really yeah actually i had that happen to me recently and i was like i just didn't uh, where I was in a conversation, I really want to interrupt them. Like, let's talk about something that means something. Like, I'm not interested in this monologue <laughs> of yours. And I had no tools. Like, I was just... Actually, I was... <clears throat> I was actually went off to breastfeed my child. Because <laughs> that was my... Like, I didn't know how to... How to, like... Uh, Get out of it. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, oh, this is... I can't do this. I, w- I love... I wish I could deflect in that way. But... <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's a strange situation to be in because... Um, you know, I had a, a friend, a good friend, who interrupted me talking to a writer in my at my first solo show to ask how he could be in the magazine. And I was just like, what? I told him later, like, that's totally inappropriate. But I don't I don't have that level of friendship with that many people that I'd feel comfortable to be like, that wasn't cool. You know, no. most people I would just be like, talk about it to another friend. Like, can you I can't believe this happened. Yeah, it's I mean, I think what you said is really correct about emotional intelligence. And you, you mentioned e- like the question even mentions ego. But I think a lot of it is also insecurity. Yeah. Like you've got to let people know that you're. Yeah. Validation yeah. for sure. 
I mean, I had someone ask me like, oh, so what's happening? And this was like a curator that I really like. And then I got really stressed and I was like, and then I started this. Yeah, I started doing this thing, you know? And I'm like, I'm doing this and this and that. And I'm like, why? What the fuck? Like, shit, this, this she can just Google. I mean, so that was definitely more like insecurity driven being like oh what should i tell this person being stressed about it yeah but then another thing is that at least in the american context this works this kind of behavior works people who talk about their projects people who go up to the curator and they start talking about what they're doing you think it's not going to work like i've watched and been like oh they're going to be so disgusted by this behavior and then the next thing you know what the person is has a show and like so it actually works this kind of like you said it's a lot of times men aggressively promoting themselves and i've seen it like work 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 it works wow i know a lot of collectors big collectors hate this kind of thing i mean an artist talking about their projects and stuff in front of a collector is a huge you know big no-no i mean a lot of particularly these like you know white male collectors these big sort of blue chip collecting artists uh sorry collectors often what gets them into galleries and is is like uh, gallerists talking to them about football and stuff it's these kind of really mundane things that actually draw them in rather than you know an artist's ego and that's you know it's like a hugely toxic thing at the same time it's also kind of like dishonest i mean i'm just trying to like see these like different sides you know when when these like casual conversations are like a way to connect but it's actually like initially like eventually will be about the work yeah i just feel really mixed going up and talking about what you do is maybe more like content driven than than football but like because that's about chemistry and and that kind of chemistry also leads to i would say discrimination because if you have um, a rich white male collector and then you're an artist who has something in common with him. You also went to the Hamptons yeah. as a child or whatever. Um, you have a totally different point of reference for talking about these casual things and making it seem like you're not trying to get someone to notice your work when you really are. Because you have this in. Yeah, and this is that speaks to really these inherent power structures like privilege begins mm. privilege. And it, yeah, it can be really um, self-perpetuating in that way. Even... Like this whole, I just recognize that me, you know, my, the, with regards to the previous question, um, like saying no is actually like a huge privilege to just say no to stuff. Mm. Um, because, you know, some of us don't have that. You simply can't do it for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really interesting that there are like these two, yeah, such like opposing sides like because we all like find these like conversations annoying but then when you see like what what's the what's the opposite or maybe it's uh in yeah like is there an in-between can we talk about like important stuff that still allows some chemistry or the other um, more people involved in a conversation rather than have the ego driving it i always find like deflecting that kind of grandstanding and giving them a kind of really awkward compliment <laughs> almost uh creates that mirror for themselves they kind of see themselves for what they just did and that kind of oh you're like oh like that's i'm so glad you're getting this solo show at this gallery that you, you must be doing so well for yourself and like this just kind of like a really <laughs> overly generous compliment actually sometimes is enough for them to recognize that what they actually said it was totally like fairly um yeah, socially just super 
inappropriate for the context. Yeah, like, oh, wow, you're really, uh, really excited about that, huh? <laughs> like, good for you, you know. <laughs> yeah, daddy didn't say I love you enough, so I'm going to validate you. Like, yeah. I'm really going to try that. I need to go home and, like, rehearse these, though. But speaking of, you know, daddy not loving you enough, like, you know, people do carry a lot of trauma and artists often ca carry that sort of, yeah, like they, they wear it a lot and it, it, it informs their, um, yeah, they process it in their, in their, in their life and, and in their work and through their work, like kind of real time. So sometimes a lot of that is in the forefront. And so that's kind of why often it does come out in these weird ways. Maybe viewing it that way helps too, to deal with it. Like if someone's just talking about their ego, like, you, you know, they're talking about their work a lot and they're doing these kinds of behaviors, you could just be like, oh, like, I feel sorry for them that this is everything to them and just have a little, little compassion. Exactly. Yeah. And then say you have to breastfeed your baby and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> And luckily, like, there are a lot of memes that lambast this kind of behavior and that there is some kind of solidarity behind, yeah, how, how, like, yeah, just how, how humorous it can be as well. Yeah. Um, and not look at how sad it is that how sad people have become that they have to really kind of, yeah, mm -hmm. wear this facade and constantly kind of spew out their, um, resume, their resume <laughs> at people. <laughs> Um, what about this question? So, dear Adelaide and Anna, what, what, what can one offer as an artist to a partner, considering my precarious income and the lack of stability, particularly as a man with the notion of being a provider, etc.? Say one is dating someone in a creative field, someone who understands and has a similarly low income. This is also related to age, and this problem seems to be increasing as one ages, and society and partners have expectations of establishing a future, owning something, and raising kids, etc.? Yeah, that's a heavy one, isn't it? Yeah, it speaks to a lot of not just it. Does, it has a, it not, not like it's not just to do with the arts. It kind of precarity is the new norm. I mean, I was raised on a dairy farm in like regional Australia. <laughs> um, Australia is fairly, you know, it's a new world country like America and Canada and New Zealand. It's <clears throat> excuse me heavily uh, capitalistic and materialistic and, and people are expected to go to university, um, you know, college, uh, you get a job after that and you um, find a partner, you buy a house, you're locked down to a 35-year loan, which is kind of, you might as well be married. <laughs> it's probably longer than your marriage is going to last. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, you know, then you have your kids and that's 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 sort of the people's i say people i mean this is how a lot of the the structures of the society are fairly driven in that way and um yeah even my most alternative uh uh friends from australia are still quite yeah driven by this um this fairly binary concept um and uh yeah my career has not at all been <laughs> any of those things except um yeah, I, I did a PhD super early, way too early. I lost my whole 20s wow. to a PhD. I started when I was, I just turned 24, you know, and that did set me up for like a career in academia and, and um, as an independent curator. But um, yeah, I lost out on heaps of, in, you know, fairly formative years. Um, so I had to kind of claw them back in my 30s. 
really <laughs> desperately. <laughs> but yeah, like with regards to precarity, um, yeah, I feel like this is this question is fairly. I mean, I'm a man and I'm in a relationship. Um, luckily, I'm, I've been incredibly fortunate to find a partner who's um, understanding and um, she doesn't fairly buy into this kind of binary concept of the man as the provider, um, which takes the pressure off considerably. Um, but then when you go out into the world and you're faced, because like, you have your own dynamic within a relationship, but then when you go out into society, sometimes even if you don't value certain things that other people do, sometimes they can, like for me, I don't value my looks that much as a lot of people do. And sometimes when I'm in a situation um, where people do, I feel plain, even though I don't, in my heart, I don't really care. Mm. Um, so then you feel like people, and especially when they value that, then they don't pay as much attention to you. So like in thinking of that in terms of these kind of gender roles that a lot of societies have, do you feel, do you feel that at all? I mean, I guess you just, you know, you're in a relationship now during COVID where maybe you're not out in the world so much, but like, as you start to encounter more, you know, family and friends and people in society, like, do you feel like any of that eats away at you, even though you don't want it to? Of course. I mean, it's the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we're talking about, really, a lot of it. Um, it's like, you know, we don't know how much we're dictated by the male gaze. We don't know how uh, much we're dictated by this, uh, yeah, fairly um, patriarchal structures of uh, the man being a provider. I, when I did this marriage registration in Latvia, the registrar told me I was Gimena um, Galva, which means like head of the family. And I, uh -huh. I, I literally lulled. I was like, wow. <laughs> Are you, are you okay? Wow. I'm, I'm what? I'm the head of the family now. Like just me and my partner. I'm like, Oh, oh. <laughs> this was like, <laughs> like a reminder. And when we went to get a rental flat, uh, this is something that even in Australia, I I've never encountered this, you know, but they just drew out a contract just like in my, in my name, they, they just completely ignored my wife. As if wow. she wasn't actually a person, you know, because they just assume that because I'm the man, I'm paying the money, I'm paying the mm. bills. Let's just put it in here, you know. And this had, this I'd never experienced this level of patriarchy before, you know. And, and in Latvia, I think uh, it's still very. It holds on to a lot of these um, things for various reasons, like um, obviously the post-Soviet uh, legacy, um, but also going even further back, you have like this um, the Lutheran Church and the the Northern Crusades had a huge influence in Latvia, in sort of perpetuating this um yeah these patriarchal structures so um i think we live through this and a lot, a lot of and it comes out in some weird ways and yeah one of these is this yeah expectation um on on men to perform this certain role of um breadwinner i think yeah i've i've had various moments i think my one of my earliest relationships failed because i was an arts worker in a very precarious uh, labor um Force and she was really successful in what she was doing and like um, I just couldn't keep up and we just sort of fizzled out because um, our aspirations we both held on to the same aspirations of you know this like I just described before like getting the house and having maybe some pets or whatever and then you have the kids and 
I just couldn't, uh, at that stage in my career, I could not um, perform that. And mm. uh, yeah, for those reasons, it just totally fizzled out. Our listener asks, like, what can one offer t- as an artist to a partner? Like, when there's those things he can't offer, is there any <laughs> words of comfort or any <laughs> anything you can suggest or, like, that he can focus on or think uh, to sort of, like, shift that mindset somehow? Well, I think part of it would be perhaps shifting the context. I mean... I overcame a lot of these uh, expectations, let's call them pressures, by I moved to the EU and and, um, it's totally, um, it's widely accepted culturally to to rent. You know, nobody asks you, oh, are you, you know, like saving up for something? You know, it's like that I was looked down on always in Australia as being, you know, just renting (laughs) is somehow like a, a judgment. Like, like you're some kind of, mm, you are not a fully developed adult yet. Or yeah, something. exactly. Like proper adulting is apparently to own some kind of asset, you know. Um, but real, realistically, um, like the capricious nature of labor uh, today for uh, a huge generation, probably like XYZ. Um, yeah, the reality is that without um, inherent privilege, um, one cannot be expected to like participate in this kind of, um, yeah, this this form of capitalism, which is like, yeah, mm. to, to own an asset, like a physical asset. Um, you maybe you'd be lucky to get a car or something, but uh, yeah, real estate is just kind of off the cards. Um, but it, you know, it shouldn't be about that. Like, yeah, as an artist, you you you're a creative person. I know plenty of artists who form collectives and. Um, bought houses together and you know like-minded individuals and happy to rent in the city but maybe you want to own something in the countryside um you know this is how a lot of residencies start actually it's just by creative people um getting together and starting something um and you you, yeah you can do it like uh um you can make it work for you like you can create um a non-profit or an NGO and do it that way and actually make it um, be smart about it, like uh, economically. Um, I love to get creative with my with my tax. Like I wouldn't underestimate the power of a good accountant, to be honest. Um, you, mm. You'd be surprised what things you can claim as expenses, you know, um, mm-hmm. through creative practice. I, could, I, I really love this. Basically, you we're giving this person advice, like go start your own residency in the countryside. <laughs> Yeah, or just yeah. or something, and get an accountant, and get a good accountant, or yeah, just get, get an account that kind of gets um, what you're doing, and um, like you'd be so totally surprised at what you can claim, uh, like transportation, um, and I, yeah, recognize that first you have to kind of you have to earn to be able to claim, but um, you can embrace this um, like this fairly. Um, capricious what I said about capricious labor market that you can kind of embrace it as being spontaneous like you can sort of roll with it I, I, I this is to be honest I I um outside of a one-year fellowship like a postdoctoral fellowship that I got uh, in Finland um that was the longest like employment contract that I'd had in my life <laughs> I'd always been on um, what they call sessional 
like employment, like semester to semester. So I'm constantly like hustling with the real professors to, to get, you know, teaching work the next semester. And um, it's super stressful um, when you're in it. But looking back, I recognize um, just how opportunistic that made me um, and actually um, how much I achieved in those kind of gaps in between. Um, it was incredible, like what I did at that time. Even though when I was in it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I recognize that uh, going back to the, um, the, the question um, from your listener, it was like, I realized, I realized that, you know, child rearing, for example, that's not like the opposite of spontaneous. That's um, heavily reliant on structure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't even have a pet. Um, but, you know, my plants seem pretty, pretty happy. All my plants died when I gave birth. It's like, can't have both. You transferred the care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, gotta water her every now so often. I guess. <laughs> well, this oh. has been great. It does, it does happen eventually. So, uh, my name is Inga, and I, uh, I'm from Latvia, uh, but uh, already for some time or maybe eight years i'm very bad with numbers or maybe nine years i'm i'm living in helsinki in finland so i have a family here i have an artist practice also here and um, so my background uh, i'm a painter and uh, mainly but it's kind of uh, um, very much related with restoration, which is also my background, and also with uh, pedagogy, which is also my background. So these three uh, disciplines are somehow um, crossing paths all the time in my artist practice. So, but predom- predominantly, I'm working with with uh, with painting. Well, thanks for being with us today. We were wondering if you could help us give advice. So we got a question that says, new season, yay. I had a baby this summer, can anyone else relate? My first and probably my only child, I'm turning 40 soon. Luckily I live in Oslo in Norway and even though I'm an artist and not that successful, I will survive financially because of the welfare system. My partner has a good job and stable income, but how do I deal with the fact that I only earn less than half as much as he does when we share responsibility for our child? I don't need to go on expensive vacations, even though I love traveling, buy fancy new clothes, don't need a bigger flat, but I think he does, and he wants it for our child too. I'm not that established as an artist yet, and I think I'll have to work really hard to get a career going once I'm done with my maternity leave. I need good arguments for focusing on the art, even if it means less income, and not spending the better half of the week in a part-time job that drains all of my energy. As you probably understand, I need to convince myself as well as my partner. Bringing a child into this precarious situation is a whole new responsibility. I'm used to just being responsible for myself. What level of materialistic stuff does a child absolutely need? Please let someone who has kids answer. Yeah, I have. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I'm in uh, almost four years, so actually... <clears throat> uh, also, I became mom when I was 39. And... Uh, at, at, actually, at that point, when uh, when uh, when my daughter was born, then um, my 
in a way artist career or practice was like blooming and I had so many shows and and uh, I was super super busy with work and um, and then uh, my partner is also an artist but uh, luckily he has uh, luckily he has a full-time job he's uh, working in a museum and then uh, basically the first year when uh, when the, my daughter was born, uh, I was spending uh, time with her. And that's what I kind of think that what my, my advice as a mom would be, or, or artist mom, that this first year, I think it's not about, uh, about art, it's about really about uh, this kind of pedagogical or, or parenting, uh, parenting thing, because I think this first year, when uh, year, uh, you need to be really close with your your child. Uh, you need to create this um, attachment, or that we we are bound bound. You need to create bound because that that will set the the further uh, upcoming years how how confident or how secure the child will feel, and now. My daughter is almost four, and I can see that she's she's really or okay when she's left alone for a moment, not completely alone, but uh, but she don't need full attention all the time, and and somehow I feel that uh, this first year when I was really like pushing away all my artist artistic stuff or my uh, artist practice, that it somehow really compensates now later later on. In, in regards to parenting yes. or in regards to your practice or in regards parenting and as well as uh, practice because during this one year you can't lose really anything you know it's just like i was also a bit desperate that because there was not n- never time you know that i could finish finish my 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 things or or even start to think about them and then uh, also very important was this written uh, that you need to create a written uh-huh. And in between, there are breaks, like when the baby sleeps or, or naps, then, then you can really take time to, your, uh, to realize your creativities or, or do, your, do your art. Those moments which were in between when, when she was resting, then, then I was really like, I remember it was this kind of drastic planning or, or crazy planning that you need to manage this and these things in a certain amount of time. And every day you just do a li- very little, but still you can, uh, can manage. So that's somehow I survived. And, and uh, yeah, and now I think that it, it was maybe right decision that I, I, was, I, was, I was with her. Yes, and, and the first years, of course, you don't need much. For baby, there was a question about materialistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you don't need much really, and and it's just later on maybe when there starts like kind of hobbies or 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 that you need to pay for some special schools or classes, then maybe it's different. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, I would just as an artist, I would no, as a mom basically, I would I would suggest just to take enjoy this time. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a bit stressful, but to enjoy, really. Because I imagine this person could feel like, oh, I'm never going to have an art career again if I take that time. No. But hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it's just a short period of time. 
And meanwhile, I was not working like physically. I wasn't really in the studio, but I was kind of spending this time a lot of, on some other things, like a lot of walking and observing and uh, and also reading. And there was a moment when I when I could do just that, like kind of growing brain muscles, you know, and that somehow really, uh, I can feel that it was <laughs> not a waste of time in a mm. way or, or for my artist practice, that this kind of, yeah. But in a way, what you're saying you did is the same thing you did with your child. So in the beginning, you know, you said you focused on helping them develop as a person so that later on you could reap the benefits of having a four-year-old that can entertain herself. So in the same mm-hmm. in the same way, like with your your art practice, you were like reading and thinking and kind of building towards the future where you could have more time and use all the things that you had acquired during that time to help you with your practice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the this actual practice shifted into something else. Like I wasn't creating, producing paintings, artwork, uh, actual artwork, but I was more working on. Uh, on growth in a way mm. and actually very it's also very I don't know how it is with other moms but for me really there was I couldn't think about really about anything else like kind of it's this kind of fog all this year I had a fog while I was breastfeeding there was this kind of feeding fro- fog that it didn't allow really to to focus uh, on anything else the person who has submitted the question is also like very concerned about um, the precarity of being an artist, and especially in relationship to her partner, which... Uh, it, of course, depends of, uh, from the relationship. At that moment, when you are taking care of um, child, in a way, it's kind of cl- close relationship, then other person... Uh, Maybe has another duties, or or in this case, that it's all right that the person, fa- uh, the father, earns twice more, or or just takes care of family, like in this economical. A lot of times, I think I think it I think it can be a mistake to feel uh, if you're in a relationship, a committed relationship, and you're building a life together, to feel like every mm. each person should make the same amount. I think that's not realistic. And I think no, I think if no, you no. if you're doing fine, uh, each person is contributing. You know, like this person is spending a lot of their energy on childcare. It's inevitable if in the first year, especially if you're breastfeeding, you're like constantly need to be near the child, in a way that the partner doesn't need to be. Um, you know, he can go to work and it, it doesn't affect what mm-hmm. what he's doing at work, whether or not the child is hungry. You know, um, yeah. So I think that. There's a lot of unpaid labor that, you know, traditionally that women do. And we need to think more about that as, as actual labor. So, you know, what would it mm-hmm. what would it cost to have childcare? I mean, maybe nothing in Norway. <laughs> I don't know. But what would it cost to have childcare? You know, that's you're giving the child the care and it's like a, a individualized attention. And that is a form of contribution to your family and labor. Mm. Yes, very well put. Uh, I assume that this person who's turning 40 soon has been working as an artist for quite a few years. At least that's how I uh, perceive the the question. And in that sense, I think um, 
that's probably a big part of your personality and who you are as a person. So in that sense, I think it would be strange if your partner doesn't um, encourage that part of you, especially mm. when you when you say you live in Norway and you do have like access to welfare and like the support structure that's already in place. Mm-hmm. I think the the hardest part of this whole question is that the artist is fine with the type of lifestyle they have, but then their partner is not and expects there to be maybe a nicer home or nicer vacations or things like that. And that the kid needs that as well. So then the hardest part is like, how do you get on the same page as your partner? How do you convince them that we don't really need all those things to be happy or for the child to have a good life? I've been thinking about this a lot myself as my partner and I are both artists and I'm like, I'm, I don't think we will ever make more money than we do now, but because we live in Norway and we have like a, at least relatively that like we're quite steady financially, but, um, but it's like below average. And so I have been thinking like, how do we deal with it when school, when in school, when people go skiing, there are all these like, uh, as you also mentioned, mm-hmm. Inge, like uh, activities that cost and how do we deal with that? Tuesday, I've been thinking as well, that it's just really important to also in our network have like a, friends or people that we meet that have different types of financial situations so that it's not like, um, um, yeah. So it's possible to see that there are different ways to, to manage. That's a, that's a, that's how like I've been thinking when I try to figure out like, how do we go on? I think that's really great advice. because I have a friend, it's not child related, but all her friends besides me, it seems seem to be wealthy and she's not. And, um, you know, like I see, I see this where, you know, if you want to hang out with those people, then you struggle because you're like, well, I have to spend in order to keep up with these people. If we're going on a trip together, I have to spend more money than I'm comfortable with. And I'm going to be thinking about my money and how much I'm spending. And they're not at all. And it could be the same way with kids. You know, like you said, if you, if you don't have a a diverse income range of friends and your kid always is the one who's missing out, they're going to feel some kind of way. But like this happened to me when I, there was a trip to Disney World when I was in elementary school and um, there were, most people went, but then there were a group of us that didn't. And so they grouped all the fourth graders together who couldn't go. And we all just went in the same classroom um, while the other teachers were away with all the rest of the kids. And it was, it wasn't bad because there were other kids there. And I met like some people who became my friends for the rest of my childhood, just in that, in that time period where everyone else was at Disney. Um, you know, we had like commonality and when I went to their houses, it was like similar to being, you know, their parents were immigrants and it was just similar to being at my house. And so I actually found some of my best friends that way. But you still remember this, you know, it's kind of a bit traumatic also experience. (laughs) It actually, it wasn't because it was just all the kids from each classroom that didn't get to go. And so it was Mm -hmm. like, you had a totally different class group for a little bit. And, so, and had a different experience. And it was mostly fun because I think the teachers felt bad that we didn't get to go. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like we had our own little, you know, like vacation within the school. And I mean, I don't, there's no moments where, you know, my parents like, you know, said they couldn't afford something and then now I'm traumatized from it. It's just in the moment sometimes <laughs> I was, I was sad about it. Like, oh, I really wanted to do the whatever mm-hmm. or buy the, you know, in, in high school in the U.S. they're always trying to sell you like, class ring and yearbook and all these things, video yearbook and all these. So there were some things my parents would be like, okay, or like I would have to, you know, work to earn it or something like that. But I don't have any trauma from that. 
I think if it was extreme, you know, if, if basic needs weren't being met, mm. but it sounds like basic needs are being met and mm. the lifestyle is uh, reasonably comfortable. I have also been thinking that at least I'm going to make obvious to her ways that she could do it differently if she wants to. But then how do you convince the partner? Oh, yeah. Like, how do you get on? Yeah, that's the hard part. Maybe he also needs to see different ways of, of managing. Yeah, and also those activities. I just thought, like, mm, very just simple example. Uh, our daughter is uh, going into kindergarten. Actually, that's the most imp- uh, I- uh, most expensive uh, thing at the moment. Uh, uh, so the the kindergarten is half uh, state uh, supported, and uh, it's it's also half private. Basically, it's private, but half uh, half supported by state. And uh, it's kind of they have this special program. It's Steiner Kindergarten in a way. They have a very very simple way how they do things uh, related with nature. They are a lot out in nature. It's even a radical way how they spend time during the day. That is being in the nature and being part of 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 uh, of what happens outside. Uh, uh, like for example, there is skiing during the winter, and then they share the equipment. And and in Finland, it's probably in many countries that there is a lot of things what you can buy really uh, cheap uh, in second hand. Mm-hmm. So that uh, this part is not at all expensive, but the but the most basically most expensive part is the one. For them to be there in this place where everything is 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 very relaxed and and simple. Mm-hmm. So, have as a as an artist with a partner that has a stable job, have you felt pressure like, oh, I need to be earning more, or how did you deal with that situation when you step back a bit from your art career for a little while? There was a moment when I felt that I, I uh, there is a pressure, but. Uh, I have a very good co- good relation with my gallery. I work with a gallery, and they they in a way also support in those moments when you think that you will not manage. Of course, here is also the grant system. If you work as an artist uh, and and you are a bit visible, so there is a chance that you can receive grant or or be supported by yeah by some someone or or. And Anna, it's the same in Norway, isn't it? Yeah, you have, I mean, there's like the social welfare system. And then on top of that, there is some opportunity to find a way to to have like a uh, yeah income. When she's already in such like a privileged position, which it is, uh, as in working with arts in the, in the Nordics, or especially maybe Norway, that um, with her part-time job, she offers like some, some income, some stability, but... But also focusing on her, yeah, her skills, her education, like her what she's trained in, thinking of like what that also can offer to, to your child. Yeah, showing your kid that, you know, your passion doesn't have to do with how much money you're, you know, you're gonna be contributing to your lifestyle, but yeah, rather pursuing what you've been interested in. If I would quit art for my child, if I don't even have to. I mean, that would be sad. Actually, I tried to quit, <laughs> but then I just came to a conclusion that that um, that's the thing. What I what else I gonna do? That's for, what you do. That's the thing. What I like to do. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 
But yeah, I think that's a fight that a lot of people have. Like, mm-hmm. you're an artist, you want to keep being an artist, but then you also want to be a parent, and one shouldn't cancel out the other. Mm-hmm. Like, both ways, because we've talked about this on another season, too, where, you know, there was a question someone wanted to know, when's the best time to have a kid? And it's like, sometimes people think all the stars have to align perfectly, and they have to be in the best financial situation, they have to own a house, they have to be in a stable relationship, all these things. But if you, there's, there's things you want in your life, sometimes you just, it, it won't be ideal, but you still got to go for it. Yes. And I think you need really the, the right person in a way to kind of, to relay on or to kind of feel that this is the right person I want to have a child with. Mm. And then other things are just like, that's the, the secondary in a way, mm. I think. Maybe it's possible to just have a conversation about thinking like, which things do we not need in our lives? Because uh, if you mm. compare yourself to people with like another type of income, of course, there are like different types of things or opportunities you do have. And just then just try to map out like which things do we not have to like, maybe we do not have to renovate this room or maybe we do not have to buy this and this and that or. And this partner, mm. they got together and this person was an artist to begin with. So it's not a surprise yeah. that they don't make a lot of money. There are so many ways of parenting. Uh, what does it take for you to have like the life you want to live? Because you probably do need art, and you want somehow to um, have your family in it too. And how, yeah, which sacrifices has to be made, or maybe they're not even sacrifices. I mean, think of it. There are priorities. Like how would you prioritize? Like mm. what's important? What's less mm-hmm. important? I find, and I think we talked about this in other seasons as well, um, to not prioritize something can be, can also be like a great freedom. You know, like, fuck that, fuck that, fuck that. All of a sudden you don't have to think about those things because you're, right. you're like, put them out of your focus. Like, those are not my priorities. I don't need this, this and that. And right. that can the, yeah. give a sense of freedom. I really find that. I agree. Like when it comes to my life, there are certain things that are standard that most people have and I don't you know, you just realize if you really think about it, you're like, I don't need that. I don't want that. Just because other people have it doesn't mean I need it. And I have a happy life without it. And things might seem weird to other people, but your life is your life. No, but continuing a bit about things, what you think you need, then uh, just sleep overnight. And then on the next day, you just wake up. And of course, I don't need it. But it's true. Yes, I totally agree about this prior prioritizing and then life somehow really gets much more uh, lighter or easier. Or No, I just thought like how, uh, uh, since I'm a mom, how my working habits has changed that this certain time limit is uh, crazy, in a way not crazy planning, but, but there is kind of strict planning that e- either you do it now or then just <laughs> you can't postpone it or... or, or uh, you just if you make a decision you you need to work on it now when you have time and then either later you don't know if you will will still return to that or what i was going to say is i think we've all seen you know a kid or you know some a kid open a present and then they play with the box that just shows you how little kids need they're very creative mm. people they don't need a bunch of fancy stuff no no hmm. a stick and some dirt you know, they'll do something with it. Or just sock as a favorite toy, you know. There was one moment when my daughter was carrying around uh, wherever 
just sock because <laughs> she likes it. <laughs> so we got a question that says, Dear Adelaide and Anna, what do you do if your child is an extrovert and you're a massive introvert? Well, <clears throat> I'm an extrovert. I think my daughter was an extrovert. So we, we don't know how to help. <laughs> I have been thinking, though, um, a child is like uh, a human being. And what do you do if your friend is an extrovert and you're a massive introvert? I was just trying to translate it into other types of relationships. <laughs> yeah, but that that's also, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm an introvert who can pretend to be an extrovert. And as a child, I was very shy, like the type of kid who's hiding behind their parents' legs. And my parents would always try to get, you know, pull me around or force me to say hi to somebody or something like that. And that was awful, too. So I think either way it goes, you have to understand that your child is not you. They're not going to be the same as you. You can't expect them to have the same kind of uh, social interactions that you do and be sensitive to that. And and one thing, my mom really nurtured the things that I was into, like art, you know, so she would get me markers or crayons and, you know, the things that I like to do, She because she's really believed in, like, figuring out who your kid is as a person and then mm-hmm. nurturing that. And so if your kid's really social, then she would make sure they had play dates or whatever, you know, playing with friends. What you're saying now is actually kind of interesting, because I think it can be like a danger believing your child is kind of like you. So when it's very set from the start that it's like some major differences in personality, such as like extrovert and introvert, maybe that can actually lay some sort of foundation in like, yeah, as you say, like nurturing the quality, like the the traits of your child instead of sort of expecting or reading in yourself all the time. I just kind of imagine, uh, imagine the situation that um, uh, my child is going uh, to play in a sandbox and there is another mom with child and then I'm not in the mood to engage with, with another mom or other kid. So I would just talk with my child or, or kind of pay, would play with her more and then maybe not really ignore the other, other pair or uh, other mom with, with, with her kid, but, but somehow maybe would let them know that I don't want to be involved. Although I could be like, yes, very open in a way that I can embrace in any situation, what, whatever happens, the other one or so, but, but I can imagine this situation really, yes. It's kind of me as introvert and my, my, my kid as extrovert, yeah. But then kids somehow brings up some, some ideas, just being like natural and playful, and then you get just involved. So you are just there, part of this all. So For introverts, you know, you need time alone and time that's calm, like not constantly socially engaged. So I think if there's events where you can drop the kid off, that's great. You know, if the library has a kid thing, <laughs> you know, they could be like more active in these activities, camps and things like that, where you don't have to be there. You don't have to be totally socially engaged all the time. I think like the family unit can sometimes be so close and closed, you know, like closed off, sort of opening it up or making sure that there are some other uh, people that also the child can trust and that is good and safe and fun to be around. Kind of like in a romantic relationship, I guess, like one person isn't supposed to fill all of my needs. 
And right. same would go with parenting, you know? Like, a parent can't be everything. So now we have uh, been, like, doing both of the kids' questions for the season. <laughs> <laughs> Two things that have changed in your life, or one thing even, um, that's changed since the pandemic. Mm. Actually, uh, I was in a maternity leave. It's kind of smooth, slow. Uh, time is my child a bit in a studio and then apparently it, it was cut with uh, lockdown so this this smoothness was just continuing ah. uh, yes and uh, there was not very b- big drama in, in my in my in my life in a way and also not in my artist practice and and actually at that time I was uh, so in a way uh, tired or I even got a burnout. So this pandemic came in a way as a relief. So I had more time for myself and uh, to think about some upcoming things, which were actually uh, canceled also because of that and or postponed. So I gained more time because of that. Mm. Mm, But uh, as an artist, uh, I just uh, experienced, in a way, disappointment. Uh, uh, so I had a show one month ago and uh, in Latvia, and it was just uh, closed down one week after the opening because because of the bad situation, COVID situation oh, um, no. in the country. So yes, that's what that was. That was in a way the first first time when I felt like, wow, I I'm so disappointed now, and and also that's. I just now imagine like how how the other artists uh, felt, who maybe experienced the same. All this whole situation somehow, uh, uh, I I witnessed how um, the society basically uh, uh, split in a part uh, because of believers and and not believers, and even my friends, just a small like, just because of some. Yeah, I even can't put it in words <laughs> now. Like, but but somehow that this kind of uh, reality of of life, some somehow you are faced or confronted with reality of life, even um, even uh, with among the family, the situation in a family, and and. Uh, so you do you mean people's different reactions to the whether or not they yeah, believe yes. in the pandemic? Yes. Yes. That was that was the, yeah shocking shocking the most shocking part of this of this all like this not you being united in a way but the other way around that that right at the beginning it seemed like everyone was going to reunite to try to you know fight this thing together mm-hmm. and then it ended up splintering relationships and people's different levels of recklessness uh, really came out. Um, but we wanted to say thank you so much for joining us and thank you for giving advice. Season 4 of Ask Adelaide and Anna was commissioned for a structure and vision for changing circumstances, a project curated by Maya Rudovska in collaboration with Bestival Arts Centre and Pars Nola. Thanks to Annabelle Shin for creating the sounds we use in these jingles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>